Today we have Hemel Badiani on the show. Hemel is hyper-focused on the North and South Carolina markets. Hemel and his team believe being experts in the markets they invest in gives them an advantage when considering which deals to pursue. They focus on long-term relationships with their clients rather than completing transactions. Hemel is looking to build something beyond himself and is building the company for future generations. He understands that in order to do this, he must provide value for his clients today that goes beyond just real estate investments. Relationships are the key to his success. Listen and learn. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Hemel Badiani before we start the show. Hemel lives in the Charlotte area. He comes to the U.S. from India and now calls Charlotte his home. He believes in diversification and offers investors the ability to invest in multiple asset classes, such as multifamily, storage, new construction, land, and now even looking at hotels. I love his relationship and long-term focus. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Hemel Badiani. Hemel, appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Darren, for inviting me here. I'm super excited to have a conversation on things that we both love, multifamily and real estate in general. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how we know each other. Um, We were both down at a uh, multifamily conference in the Carolinas in Charlotte. And um, we we were just walking from the conference to, to a networking function. And next thing you know, we were just chatting away, walking down the sidewalk. And um, I'm like, this guy is doing some great stuff. I'm, I'm looking forward to, so I asked him to come on the show. I appreciate you coming on. Um, typically, first thing I ask is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Yep. So we own uh, on the multifamily side, existing acquisitions, uh, close to a thousand units. Uh, we'll probably buy four to five hundred by the end of this year, more. And then we have several other divisions of the business. Our company is structured a little differently than what you would see in a conventional uh, multifamily syndication operator type of company. So tell me about that. How is it? How is it set up differently? Yeah. So we uh, we wanted our theory is that uh, one has to hyper-focus in the market, uh, but diversify in terms of your investments to create a nice portfolio. Because as everyone can see over the last couple of years, things have gone so differently and so radical every six months. One has to change its strategy in terms of what we're trying to do, right? Case in point, 2020, 
things were kind of scared and, you know, distressed. 2021 came, exuberance came, you know, injection of capital, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And now 2022 interest rates and all the, all the new stuff that we're feeling. So our company is uh, three divisions right now going into multiple more, uh, mainly focused on existing acquisitions, uh, new construction uh, and land. Uh, mostly around the, the Charlotte area. Uh, our focus is three-hour circle around Charlotte gives us eight beautiful markets from Greenville, South Carolina, down to you know Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina, and anything in between. Uh, so the barbecue in our backyard is pretty awesome. Uh, we are also vertically integrated. We're bringing property management in-house. Uh, we're trying to hire for construction management, and then we're expanding into other asset classes such as uh, hotels, self-storage, uh, dental offices, et cetera, et cetera. And you are busy. What did, what did you do before you got into real estate? When did you get into real yeah, estate? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an incredible journey. So I started in the management consulting realm uh, for, for about 15 years. Uh, I was in uh, traveling across three continents, worked with everybody from Disney theme parks. Holy yeah, cow. Disney theme parks, the Vatican. It was an incredible journey. Me standing even in my 20s, in front of CEOs and CFOs of Fortune 100 companies and giving them advice, uh, just something, and them paying me for that. <laughs> uh, I was like, pay, well, pay, paying the company, and they were paying yeah, you exactly. well. They're like, how do I right, take this right. from 600 million to 700 million? And uh, so it was, uh, you know, interesting stuff that was happening there. But uh, learned a lot from very smart people in terms of innovation mergers, acquisitions, how to run companies, how to inspire people, how to build teams. What does bureaucracy look like? What does organizational inertia look like? Uh, and then I had uh, twin events called, so called twin babies. You might be able to hear them in the background here. Um, so yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. How, how old are they seven, now? Seven. So yeah, they keep, keep us on our Fantastic. toes. Uh, completely energetic uh, at this stage. Uh, but yeah, they were born. So I wanted to uh, redefine my work-life balance, so to speak. Um, so it took a boring job, you know, a low, low, lower stress job as a senior vice president at a bank, which came very cushy, you know, assistant in hand, small team, still doing strategic stuff internally for the company. Uh, but you know, not 80 hour weeks traveling every week type of deal. So it allowed me to stay home and also introspect what I wanted to do in life. So that led to finding my competency. And I figured out that um, I, I'm not a new ideas guy, but if I can find an idea that somebody has done before and makes sense to me, I can scale it pretty easily. So that's what led to first an outsourcing company, uh, then a private lending firm, then a, a residential real estate firm, all of them I exited. And right in the heart of COVID, we started the commercial arm of the business uh, and over the last 20, 21 months grew it uh, to about 10 people uh, and uh, just, you know, incredible journey so far. That's crazy. So first of all, you said you're not an idea guy, but you know yes. how to scale. And, you know, I think that, you know, I want listeners to hear that because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, we're, we're going to talk mainly about real estate, but even if the listeners want to start their own deal, like, look, there's plenty of companies out there that just did it better. Yeah. You know, they just had better service, did it faster, had a better product. So you don't have to recreate the wheel. So 
you saw real estate as being an avenue that you can get involved with and that you could scale. Absolutely. It is commercial real estate, especially gives me to talk with the level of sophistication that I had in my corporate world with investors, you know, pretty sophisticated people who deal in it. Um, also allows us to scale in a, in a fortune 100 type of manner. That's the whole essence of how we want to build the company is build a brand. We're not doing transactional two, three deals a, a year type of deal. I don't want to retire in Hawaii and, you know, sit with my laptop and that, that's not just me. Right. So again, as I introspect, what, what do, what do I, you I want? want? What is that vision? That lasts beyond me. Uh, and I just want to see how far I can take it um, very ethically uh, with the right discipline, inspiring team members, building people would want to work with us, people would want to move families for, with us. And I'll tell you all stories about how we've built the team so far. Uh, but it's just magic happens when you have the right people surrounding you. That, that's huge. So what's the name of your our, company? Our brand is Exponential Equity. All right. So talk about, I mean, you have a lot of confidence, man. <laughs> I mean, just... Just talking to you like you, you're you confident that you can take knowledge from one industry and then pass it along into a different industry. So uh, how are you so confident that you can scale? Uh, it, it boils down to fundamental principles, right? One, always do things for the long term, not the short term. Um, so relationships before transactions, and that pays off in, in the end. Second, Build people first, so hire drill sergeants, driven, relentless, with high integrity and loyalty. Uh, and loyalty comes through inspiration, right? Them seeing what I do, the way I work, the way I take small decisions, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. Uh, and then instituting those processes and systems. And a lot of people talk about systems and processes it doesn't have to be tools all the time or over-engineered stuff, right? It has to be driven around the action you're trying to take and make it repeatable. So what I mean by that is, you know, building something that's simple enough for anybody to use, bring them on board and allow it to be repeatable uh, from a work perspective. It could be a spreadsheet, could be a, a meeting cadence, uh, a conversation, but drilling it into the ethos of the and the culture of the company is what we try to do so that that that's what i've done for other companies and really helped really smart people um so when i decided to do it for for my own uh, brand it just comes naturally to have that sure. fantastic so let's take a piece of the multifamily syndication business and break it down to, to hear how how you kind of went about that so sourcing Sourcing deals and underwriting yep. deals. You know, how do you take that and and make that process efficient? Yeah, we, we did uh, two things to make it uh, efficient. First, hired someone that brought 20 plus years of competency in that space. Uh, initially, when we started, obviously didn't have the salaried position to provide. Uh, but again, through conversations of where I wanted to bring the company, the individual was inspired enough to actually move his entire family from Raleigh to Charlotte, about three and a half hours away, uh, shift his family schools, buy a new house. And for the first six months, I didn't pay him a dime. Um, so that, yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's, wow. That's, so Holy super cow. grateful, right? So that was one thing. 
And the second thing was we have a three-stage process. So the acquisitions director, Casey, he's, he's the yes guy, right? So he, he would do the initial uh, underwriting and pass on the deal, but his job is to internally sell the deal to us, all of us. Um, and so he, you know, he puts on his sales code and we have Monday evening meetings from nine to 12, looking at deals in the night um, and really looking at what we can do there. So that's, that's one part of the process. His job is not to, you know, cut every deal out and kill every deal, kill some deals, but his job is to make sure he takes the brokers out for relationships, spends the money on steakhouses and cigar lounges and does what a business development or a salesperson has to do. So that's defined. My COO, Yomash, he is the no guy. His job coming into that Monday meeting is to basically kill the deal. And if he cannot kill the deal, that's the deal we go after. And that's by asking, hey, what's happening to real estate taxes? What's happening to insurance? Why is Why are they selling right now? Uh, you know, are they, what, what are they hiding or not telling us as a seller? What, what things we have received, what we have not received, uh, all the things that basically he's, he's essentially the no guy, right? And I stay away from it because I want to own everything that's coming my way. I know that. <laughs> so I don't want to be part of that process. So removing myself, uh, to a point where I don't speak up in that decision-making and trusting that both of them uh, will do the job that they are supposed to do. And then the third wheel is Jamie Grubb, our director of asset management, who's going to run the show. He comes from the debt side. Um, so he worked with Lument, uh, the lending firm, before he joined us full time. Uh, and his job is to structure the debt and understand what this could look like. And also, when we are running the ship, because we are operators, we're not just raising capital for anyone else, we operate our own deal. Um, so his job is to understand how would this look when we say we're going to raise rents by 200. Is it realistic? How many leases we'll have to cancel? So he's looking at it from that angle. So allowing that triumvirate uh, from a process standpoint, along with you know investing thousands of dollars in underwriting models and things that would make it efficient for us, more automated for us. We have an outsourced team for underwriting that allows us to quickly turn around what are the last five leases and next five leases. There's a whole ton of work that goes behind, but essentially it comes down to creating the three points that would allow us to have checks and balances, staying away from those three points in terms of decision-making and trusting them with what their job is. Yes, no, can this work from a debt and asset management perspective? That's what makes the magic happen. That's very cool. So now, are you in the room yes. when these guys are yes, having these absolutely. discussions? But you, but you, but you just I, sit, I sit there, quiet. there quiet. I tried to stir the pot now and again, but they shut me down. <laughs> <laughs> so, of those three, like, who's got the stronger match. hand? The no guy. Yes guy. No guy the no guy. Yeah. The no We'd guy. rather not do a deal and pass on opportunities that we missed than lose a dime of investors' money. That, that's the basic philosophy for us. Well, if you are a investor listening to this right now, you, that is yeah. music to your ears, right? Like you want to you invest with a guy that you feel comfortable is looking, looking out over your shoulder and, and over your heart. Yeah, our average so, investor is with um, us for cool. five deals now. Yeah, that's wow. pretty amazing. And how We've many deals have you done? We've done 12 transactions done? so far. 
Twelve. So why Charlotte? Uh, well, initially our entire leadership team. Yeah. Or the Carolinas. Our leadership team lives here, so we know the submarket. Uh, and if people on the West Coast or your investors and then on the Northeast or the Southeast, uh, they would have heard Charlotte and the MSA around surrounding it. You know, it's it's not like Texas where there are four or five big pockets that are expanding in its own way. Just like I mentioned, in a three-hour circle around Charlotte, you get eight or nine cities that are essentially over the next decade or so going to merge. Uh, through corridors that are building, uh, through the expansions of suburbs and small towns that are around. And it still has an affordability component compared in terms of cap rates and pricing compared to, especially in the Charlotte area and Greensboro and, and stuff around Charlotte. I'm not talking about Charleston, which is crazy market, still comes under the three-hour vicinity. It allows uh, a level of affordability that when you're thinking about the cycle of market cycle of real estate, the upturn and the downturn, the downturns get more cushioned, right? If you're buying stuff at two cap, three cap, 50 times earnings, essentially, it's harder uh, to survive. If you're going over a long period of time, that's fine. If you're going over a shorter period of time, it's harder to survive, right? Um, so that's one thing macroeconomically. Charlotte's itself has 250 people moving every day, plenty of jobs coming in. Uh, 32 of the global 2000 are headquartered here. So it's it's pretty small compared to like a Dallas or a Houston, but it's just growing by leaps and bounds and uh, the land, et cetera, is there. So that's one thing. The second thing I mentioned, the leadership team is here. So we we have 10 people in the firm and we have people who came from 30 plus years of experience in the economic development uh, region of Charlotte. They were planning directors of different counties, utility directors of different counties that handle our land rezoning uh, aspect of things. And that allows us to have a pulse. So we go into business alliances meeting, we meet with the senators, the local council people. We know the pulse of where the path of progress is in the city. That allows us to place bets where the bigger developers are now looking at pieces of land or construction and saying, this is the area we're now going to turn into the next five years into something amazing. And that's where you can buy things at X and make it 5X, right? That And more importantly, the bets you're placing are disciplined enough that you won't lose your shirt if any sort of downturn happens just because of what else is happening around the area. So that's what we like about it. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, that, that step is an extra step that not everybody, you know, focuses on, you know, looking at the cities and the counties and where, where are they investing for the future? You know, where are they putting their county dollars and their city dollars? And then if yeah. you can kind of follow that, um, it's just, it's just smart, you know, it's smart. So, um, what about funding sources? So, do you guys typically fund with high net worth individuals or do you get institutional money? You know, yeah, fund so far, uh, 11 out of 12 transactions we've had with retail investors. So we have a great Rolodex of existing investors and word of mouth investors through our friends and family. People who invested with us said, hey, these guys are good guys. They spread the word around. Uh, we have 
But 20 months, that's, I'm, I'm jumping in. 20 months, I mean, like, how do you build that trust in such a short time? I mean, a lot of people tell me, okay, well, I did a deal and then, yeah. you know, went full cycle and then they went and told their brothers and mothers and, you know, sisters and brothers. Like, so, but 20 months, yeah. you're not doing it, that? Like, so how do you build uh, that accessibility trust? accessibility when they're having the conversation, right? Everything, every tough question that you can ask every bit of radical transparency that you can imagine. Our newsletters, uh, monthly newsletters in our projects have a big challenges section, right? And so we don't paint the rosy picture. We paint a realistic picture. This is a business. We are doing sweat work um, to get some of these projects to the next level where we have projected. And not everything gets hunky-dory every month, right? People don't pay up. Uh, you know, things go wrong in the supply chain, things go wrong with the council or compliance. And we really list that down that allows, initially it was friends and family, obviously, but it, as they started talking to other people, as other people started looking at our projects, they're like, hey, you know, everybody's buying things at 150 a door, you guys are buying things at 70 a door. That's a good basis in the first place. You're not gonna lose my money with 70 a door. So, um, how, so how initially we did that because it was 2020 and the last 100 days we bought 600 units of 2020 uh, because they were distressed projects, sellers were scared. In 2021, as cap rates started compressing, we expanded into the development division. Uh, I got a residential developer here. I started speaking with him. He got inspired by the vision I had for the company. And he's like, I'm going to sell my company and join you as the head of new development. So that's that's what happened. Uh, and and uh, we cow. actually made a very tough decision in 2021 and said, cap rates are super. You must be like feeding these people like some, some <laughs> serious Kool-Aid. Like all these people like m moving, quitting their jobs, yeah, selling they, their company. I live. Man. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, yeah, no, it's, awesome. it's been, uh, again, very grateful for that type of vibe that I can project uh, and have that people want to work with me, partner with me, um, believe in trust in me but from all ends. So super grateful for that. But yeah, we 2021, we made a That's conscious it. decision that, hey, we, we're not playing this bidding war game, uh, even though most of the stuff we bought in 2020 was 100 plus units we'll actually start buying some smaller portfolios, 70 units, 80 units at a time, because the same vintage, same street, 100 plus unit would be 140 a door, 80 unit would be 70 a door, uh, and allows us, because we are so close in the vicinity of the three hour circle, really stitch together an assemblage of that portfolio that we can effectively scaled uh, management into. Uh, and that's what we do in the, it did in the 2021 period of time. Now we're switching back as, you know, less players are coming in. We're now lowballing offers, at least 18% discount to the whisper price right now. <laughs> it might even go lower than that if you can. And and things are sticking. We just bought uh, or got under contract, for example, 97 vintage for 113 at 100% occupied um, unit with 80 people in the waiting list. And that would be one of the best, you know, wow. smoothest properties that we've managed because we've managed elbow grease as well. So, you know, you talk about that, that newsletter and you talk about the challenges section, think of a challenge or, you know, that you guys went through 
And how'd you come out the other end? Yeah, so uh, we the biggest challenge or failure we had was last year we got into a very huge deal, uh, $45 million deal. Uh, we went under contract, we paid for due diligence, and uh, not an insignificant amount for due diligence money and earnest money. And then we found out that the seller was cooking the books. Oh, no. And uh, so we had to make the tough decision of terminating the contract and, uh, you know, losing effectively our earnest money and we had to walk away from it. So we had to call in the lawyers. It wasn't, it was an easy process, but that was a big, big challenge for us. People don't understand the number of deals you have to go through as a due diligence, even though in the numbers pencil in and the tough decisions one has to make of, buying into something that you don't know, no longer believing in, uh, knowing that at the other end, you will have subpar returns for your investors or walking away, personally losing money, again, for the long-term integrity of your brand and the name, knowing that every deal that you bring to the investors would be a unicorn, at least from our vantage point, fully vetted out, right? So there's a lot that goes into, as you know, into checking a project before it goes to the investors for raising the equity. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Um, now let me ask you, I, I have heard from, did, did you just allow the funds to be released through the title company? Cause I've heard from certain title companies that hard money, although it's hard, if the, the other side of the transaction does not authorize the release of the funds that it could get tied up and it gets tied and, up. It has know, to go it, through a whole uh, process for mediation. And then you kind of figure out a good split. You pay lawyers on both sides, tens of thousands of dollars. <laughs> right. right. They're, they're the ones that they're the ones that win. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, it's, it, it, it has to be done because we know you're right. Right. Um, and, uh, it, we know we are right in making that decision as well. We cannot, with an ounce of honesty, pursue with a transaction that we know that's not as good as it sounds. Sure. Um, and so we, we, had to, we had to make that decision. Yeah, you know what? I mean, so for the benefit of some of the listeners, I think that some passives, they don't understand that process. You know, that, that the lead sponsors, the general partners that put the deal under contract, they, you know, you front a lot of money, right? Yeah. You front the yeah. n the non-refundable deposit, you you know, the the application fee, the appraiser fee, the, you know, uh, due diligence people to come on site and do due diligence. All of that money is fronted. And then, yeah, if you, you know, assuming you close the deal, it gets refunded on, you know, the day of closing. But in your instance that you're talking about right now, that's just money that's gone, that's you know, gone. from, yeah. from, from the general, the general partners and the passives don't have liability on that. So I think that that's important for passives to understand because, you know, I think some, some just think, oh, well, the, the general partners are coming out and they have these deals and they're going to make so much money and they have all these fees. Um, well, they're not going to put a deal out there that they don't think, they're very highly that they're going to be able to raise the money because otherwise yeah. they have a lot of money, yeah. you know, at risk. Yeah. 
And this is an extreme scenario. That doesn't happen many a times. But you, 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 what, we have gone to deals. We've looked at it where, where we haven't paid the EMD yet, but we get early access agreements in place and look at the due diligence and invest our team's time and effort, spend a couple of days touring the property. And, we, you know, it doesn't work out because they would have said, oh, yeah, it's light renovation. <laughs> and then the right. thing is down to the studs. And you're like, oh, well, that, that doesn't make sense anymore. Right. So, right. yeah, there's right. a lot of investment of time, a lot of investment of effort and money. This is full time. I work seven days a week. This is full time for me. Seven uh, days a week? I, Come on, you got, you got two seven-year-old boys that yeah. have a lot of energy. You got to get them out. I, I do. I do. But that doesn't mean I don't do something every day. Uh, right. It's a lot of people uh, depend on me from my team's perspective, um, not for the growth or dumping shoulders or chest or anything to say we are here or we want to be a billion dollars or anything of that sort. It's the, the people that I just mentioned, people who moved families, people who sold their companies. Those are my, and my investors, they depend on me. So I carry that burden and responsibility on my shoulders pretty nicely. And I want to make sure that every day I give into some, some of that. That's huge. Uh, let's talk about if you're, say you, so Texas gets a lot of promotion, right? A lot of people moving in Texas, um, Arizona also. Um, you know, if people want to diversify, why should they look at the Carolinas? Yeah, it's it's the same story as Texas with a little bit more affordability, uh, less variation in property taxes, especially in North Carolina, where the assessment is done every four years. Um, and, you know, so one, say, talk about that. So the assessment is done every four years. If yep. you, so, you know, when the assessment was done. Correct. So say you're buying it in year two. Then, you know that the property tax is not going to go up? Not for three years. That's attractive. Because, I mean, in Texas, attractive. man, yeah. property taxes are such a big part of the deal, and yeah. it's kind of an unknown. I mean, each county is a little different on how aggressive they get in terms of pushing the, the envelope and valuation. So yeah. um, that's a nice nice thing to have. Um, yeah, that's from North give, Carolina only, though. That, South, Carolina South Carolina is similar to Texas, okay. where it gets assessed at the point of sale. Uh, but again, not as crazy as Texas in terms of where things are, uh, in terms of afford. So my, my viewpoint, and this is what Warren Buffett says about moat or contingency, right? As, as you, or law of diminishing returns, whatever you want to call it, if you have something where rents are 2000 already or 4000 already uh, to make it 8000 it's it's uh, it's harder than where rents are 1200 for a similar vintage or 1500 to make it 3000 so as texas there's just so many players so much happening texas i i would bet on texas if i if i was living there uh, just so much happening, so much wealth going in, so many people moving in, um, you know, and we'll see where the political environment would take things, but that's where the things are. North Carolina is purple in state, so the governors and the political environment is kind of in the middle, which seems relative nowadays, um, but that's allows for longer term budget passing and decision making, et cetera that is still conducive to great, great business movement. It was ranked 
number one by CNBC in terms of business uh, states in the in the United States uh, very recently, I think a week or two back. Um, so it's bringing a lot of attention, less number of projects happening, less number of players here, uh, more affordability, and that allows, uh, and and we are here. That That's the other magic. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we are here. Yeah. Hey, yeah. hey. so I just heard this term the other day, and I don't, I'm thinking it applies to you guys too. It was, it was really more talking about Tennessee, but I'm kind of thinking it falls in your camp too. But, you know, North halfbacks. Yeah. Have you ever heard of that term? No. You know, so, no. no. So people that move from the Northeast yeah. down to Florida, but then they don't want to be in Florida and then they, but they don't want to go all the way back up to the Northeast. So oh, they come halfway back. Interesting. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting. So, yeah. you know, where is the migration path? The people that are moving in, where are they coming from? Yeah, mostly Northeast and California. Okay. Yeah. A lot of cash buyers from California and a lot of money from the Northeast coming in. Because these are newer towns, just like Dallas or, uh, you know, uh, San Antonio or others are. There's not much that was, you know, Charlotte didn't have anything. It was always the second largest banking center before 2008. Uh, with Bank of America and Wells Fargo and BBNT and all these institutions there. Um, but it really changed its trajectory with, with the 2008 crisis to bring insurance companies, manufacturing, like the makers of bubble wrap. Their head, global headquarters is in Charlotte. You wouldn't believe mm. that. So there are companies here that are more sustainable from a diversification standpoint in terms of um, you know, manufacturing plants, EV factories, all those healthcare jobs, all of that is coming in the, in this three-hour vicinity, and it's really merging into one town, which is what we really like. That's that's interesting because I did also think that, you know, I had the thought that Charlotte was the banking, yeah, you know, city, you know, and and so, you know, it neat to uh, it's great to hear that there's other industries coming coming in, just like I mean, Houston it was always thought of as being like the oil town, yeah. but. They're becoming more diversified as well. They are. So um, talk about the importance of, I mean, you talked about your employees. Do you guys partner with anybody or is everything within your company? No, we, we do. Uh, we have a general contractor as a partner for our new construction projects. We do have a Rolodex, small Rolodex of capital partners, right? So we typically can raise, you know, first 50, 60% pretty easily within the, the first 12 hours or so uh, with, with our uh, database of investors. And then we, we press the easy button, right? We are operators. We're not, <laughs> <laughs> we're not, we're not great at marketing as we should be, right? We should be touting our own uh, a lot more on social media, but we don't do a good job of that. And so allowing good partners, again, knowing then them knowing us, them knowing our way of working and enjoying it has allowed to us to build that relationship where we can send an email to five or six of those partners and say, hey, this is the project. Would you be interested? And a couple of them signing up and it's done. Um, so that's what we like. Um, and then finally, we have uh, just joint ventured with a fund. Uh, for a built-to-rent community, we're building a $30 million built-to-rent, 100-plus uh, houses here in the Charlotte MSA that will build it, refinance, and keep it for long term. 
And uh, we did a joint venture with this fund that's bringing pretty much 100% of the equity. And uh, oh, wow. we've been doing a joint venture with them. They're also signing the loan with us. So that's an exciting one. Awesome. Awesome. So over the last, I say it's, well, you've only been in for 20 months, but over the last two or three years, I've seen syndicators kind of shift focus from BC space to kind of the A minus B plus space. And then some that are getting into, you know, ground up development. You, you guys opened up as ground up development arm. Yep. Um, what, What's the, what do you think is the reasoning for that shift of people wanting, you know, newer assets versus yep. the traditional value add play? Yeah, it, it has the grounded development is big because of replacement costs, right? So all with all the supply chain macroeconomic issues that we foresee and will, would happen, a construction projects allow you to build something with similar replacement costs, at least still six months, eight months back to what B class properties were selling at. Um, so can I buy it? You're, you're, you're saying that you could ground up, develop a brand new complex for the same price per unit as a B? Well, yes, it was. Um, the spread between a B class and a ground up was very, very thin. We were Last year, we built something at I think a little less than 200 a door all in. Um, and that, that's, the, you know, complete brand new apartment building. You would buy something similar for, you know, uh, in a B-class area or a B-class asset in an A-class area, 20 years old or 30 years old with all the maintenance issues that for the next 10 years on a ground up newly built, you're not looking at roofs for 20 years. You're not looking at AC right. for five, 10 years. So they, the maintenance piece becomes easier. So that, that was the big thing. The second thing for us, because we also have a land division, allows us to buy raw land really cheap uh, and do the rezoning and permitting process that you know not only significantly raises the value of the land, should we choose to not keep it, three to five X many a times, uh, but also allows us to sell it to ourselves at a discount. So again, creating that motor contingency where our cost basis is lower when we start. So with all mistakes and you know any delays that you can foresee in the development space, because it's a risky space, uh, things can go wrong when you're digging the ground, uh, when you're building stuff, when you forget stuff. Um, and that's why it's there. But returns have been exceeding expectation as compared to value add for ground up for several years for our investors. Our investors would typically look at 25 to 30% average annual returns versus the 18 to 20 on the cash on cash for a value add project. So that was the other thing. And then it just macroeconomically, unless you're in affordable housing, light tech, again, going into a little bit of political environment, we don't know what the, the November elections would bring and what would drive policy in terms of House or Senate. But if the, the net for workforce housing, uh, not only development, which is through LIHTC, which is the largest government affordable housing program in the country uh, and has been, uh, but also you know any sort of Section 8 or other programs that would be funded, the squeeze of inflation has been seen the most for people who cannot afford those rents. So even though the rents are cheaper, 
uh, A, your delinquency could be higher. B, your push for rents, uh, which is your profitability measure, which you're assuming to be 3 to 8% a year, whatever you're assuming for the next several years, goes out of the window because affordability is not there. Versus someone who's, you know, or has a $100,000 job or $120,000 job, and is living in a nice place with a coffee house at the bottom and, you know, luxury apartment, they don't want to move and change their lifestyle so much. They might reduce some of their discretionary expenses of eating out or, you know, you know, going into luxury hotels versus budget hotels or driving up versus flying. But they typically don't want to move from a nice place they're living where they're inviting friends and family. So those places, A minus, B plus, A properties in our in our vantage point would have less of that squeeze and would ride through this market cycle better than a, than a C-class property. Yeah, and we, we saw that in COVID, right? Yeah. I mean, I I thought that, you know, because I'm, I'm relatively new in the space, like four years, although you're only 20 months. Um, the, you're a veteran. The, um, yeah, I'm a veteran. Um, but the syndicators that I talked to, I was like, okay, when recession comes up, what should happen? And, you know, the consensus that I was getting was, well, every, you know, in a recession, typical recession, everybody is trying to tighten their belt. And so you'd see the bottom 20% of A's kind of flow into B properties to yep. save money and the bottom 20% of B's flow into C's. So that would, you know, bode well for both B's and C's. But in COVID, you know, B's and C's seem to do much better than I mean, B's and A's yes. tend to do much better than the C's because those were the people that got impacted the most, you know, people that were working in restaurants and bus drivers yep. and uh, working in retail and, and that, and they could, couldn't afford their rent. Um, also in the C's, what I didn't realize was that, you know, the, the approvals are kind of like one third, yeah. right? Yeah. But you get into the A's and it's more like one sixth yeah. of their income. Yeah. So they have more cushion yes. to to be able to withstand a downturn. Yes. And wage inflation has, you know, kept up a little bit uh, compared to all the other inflationary aspects. Right. So people's have, wages have gone up a little. Uh, and if you if you're at that hundred thousand mark, 10 percent is ten thousand dollars extra a year. Versus if you're at a $25,000, you know, 10% is only three grand extra. So there's that cushion as right. well that allows you to have more discretionary spending power, even in this environment, um, right. compared to a C-class property tenant. So then what about this? Like, so you can't afford, you can't build a, you know, a B or C, you, just unaffordable, yeah. right? Buy the land and, and build it. So everything that's being built are A's, A properties. So, you know, is there a worry, a concern that, okay, when the music stops, whoever's in lease up process could get stuck holding the back? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, A plus luxury, super luxury housing could, could get that issue. Um, What that's why what we're trying to build is two things. One, building a place where, housing is a shortage. So you have less, again, with all the mistakes that you can make, you have less of that worry because the macroeconomic environment will carry you forward in a downturn. 
right? Mm-hmm. Places like Charlotte or Dallas or any any other place that you would think of in the top 10 housing markets. Uh, B, create something that's kind of, you know, it's A, from a vintage standpoint, but it's not like uber luxurious. It's good two bedrooms, three bedrooms, one bedroom mix, but, you know, beyond a, a pool and a, and a playhouse and a dog park or something like that, we don't try to put crazy, you know, uh, valet services or anything of that sort, because that's what you have to figure out an ROI for in some fashion, either through property management fees or additional fees that you have to charge. And that's where the discretionary piece starts ha- hammering in for, invest- for, for your tenants. Um, so we try to stay in that. We're trying to build a, a, an A vintage, but a B plus type of community and keep our cost right. bases low because we're building it low. And that allows us to, even with any sort of uh, rent uh, changes that might happen, where we might have hit a maximum ceiling at some point, uh, we still in, are into a profitability measure, right? That, that, that's our philosophy. So basically, within the A vintage, there's different levels right. of right. A. And, and you're not going after the top, top, top. No, not for That's not for us. Now, if I had capital, right. cheap capital at 2 3%, uh, expectation of IRR or pension fund or anything of that sort, and I could squeeze that out. Uh, again, it's a game of what price you're buying it at. I refuse to buy something that's overpriced just for the future. Uh, B, what sort of debt and equity capital that you have? Are you trying to come up with creative ways of getting cheaper capital into our stack? That allows us to be a little bit more aggressive because at the end of the day, the investors have fulfillment in their capital expected returns projector are given to them, they're happy. Now, right now, my retail right. investors are, you know, 15 to 18, 18 to 20%, new deals at 25 to 30%. But if I find a, a, a bigger joint venture fund like this, that's the lowest capital stack, that's a, that's a win-win situation for us. Absolutely. So talk about, talk about that. I mean, talk about when you, when you're putting together deals, and you're looking to to fund and grow, like what is important to your investors? Is it just purely the return or is it, you know, your experience and capital preservation plus a good return? Yeah, it's uh, it's both, right? It's um, having the accessibility. Every investor of ours has my cell phone. And I tell them very clearly, very transparent. Everyone? Every- Every one of them can text me at any point, call me at any point, um, and we have 400 of them. <laughs> so uh, they, they, that, that's the accessibility we have kept. Now, once we hire our investor relations person and slowly they'll take over the communication, they'll have it. But someone from the leadership team, they can always reach out to. And the question, then uh, the answer I, I give them is, you may all have your say, but you may all not have your day. Right. Um, so I'll listen to you. You're not part of the decision making. If there is any question around how the progress is, I'm happy to send you videos or whatever ad hoc. You don't have to wait for the monthly newsletters. Um, and that builds transparency. They know they can reach out to me anytime. They can understand if deals, you know, if something has gone from a challenges standpoint, if they reach something like, oh, you have to change property management. What happened? 
well, let me tell you what happened. They sucked. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we'd rather change them than keep them. And we want to bring something in-house because that, you know, not we our experience is we can manage things better because we can keep a tab on the OPEX. And that's the play, again, in this environment. The best operators would win hands down than mediocre operators. People who can keep the bottom line through OPEX uh, operational expenditures better by keeping really, you know, good eye on what's happening in your property and spending real time rather than the weekly calls with the property management company. Those are the ones that would really have a level of profitability that not many people would see. So that's what we we do, and they understand that. So, did you wait till you got to a certain? What you know? What was the kind of the line in the sand for bringing in property management? Uh, it was about that thousand door mark. Yeah. About thousand door. So that's kind of consistently I've heard that from a lot of different syndicators. Yeah. You know, what, once they get over a thousand doors, then that's a consideration is to to yeah. bring bring it in house. Um, so that that was very similar. Hey, um, going back, like switching gears on you yeah. now, like when you were a child, like did you know that you were going to be successful? No. Did you? Like, did were you were you that confident back then? Also, or when did that? I I, I was confident. I was raised in a very different exposure, um, and that what made my experience unique. So I grew up in India, first of all. Um, where where uh, in India? I, I grew up in a state called Gujarat, which is like the western tip mm-hmm. of India, and a lot of entrepreneurs mm-hmm. came from from there. Uh, Probably the top five richest dudes in India are from Gujarat, including the prime minister <laughs> uh, from that part, huh. right? Um, are, are they part of that form? No, they're not. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Someday. <laughs> not yet. Good answer. Yeah, so um, I grew up a, uh, grew up in a business environment. My, uh, my parents, my grand, grandfather started a company that we, we still have that we manufacture chemicals. And, you know, so we learned lean and mean processing, humility of, uh, the way to treat employees, OPEX, you know, being super, super lean on the OPEX side, uh, no fancy furniture, nothing, no, nothing to, you know, do, do that. That was what I learned. One thing. Second thing, my granddad was very global in his exposure. He spoke 11 languages. Uh, he, yeah, he Holy used cow. to love to bring philosophers and poets and politicians to the house um, and debate for hours and hours, which we get to listen to. So it was important to learn both sides of the story, putting someone, you know, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, so that was a very unique exposure. Can I jump in? That, I don't know if it did or not, but that process kind of sounds similar to how you set up the, your, you know, your three yeah. guys yeah. internally to debate yes, with each exactly, other. Exactly. Exactly that. that. That's mind-blowing now that you mentioned it. I might have learned from him unconsciously. That that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Awesome. And then I I I grew up uh, going to school from uh, kindergarten to my twelfth grade in into a convent school. So it was a it was run by Catholic institution, um, and so you know the the assembly line in the morning when all the students in uniform would stand. We had growing up as a Hindu, we had the prayer for eternal God, Creator of all. Uh, uh, you know, we celebrated Christ, uh, uh, Christmas. We still do in our family here. 
big time, you know, of all the all the Catholic festivals kind of got imbibed along with my language. All the text was in English. All the teachers were Catholic nuns and priests. So it was a it was an interesting exposure there as well that allowed me. Little did I know back then it was just a great school that my parents decided to put me into. Uh, but it, sure. it was an interesting. Uh, more global than you know a typical child would have in terms of exposure. Absolutely. Now, did you come over for for college by yourself, or did your family move here? No, before? I I did. I I was living as a prince back in India. You know, four or five servants. Living yeah, as a prince. I, was, I never cut an onion in my life for the first twenty years. Never ironed <laughs> a shirt. Uh, and one day, well, my naive self told my dad, I, I, I need to go to the U.S. This one friend of mine, who, who was my best friend at that time from 10th grade, he's moved to this town called Charlotte, North Carolina, and he's got some uncles here and he's going to live there. And my dad was like, yeah, whatever, you know, you pass the exam, you should then come talk to me. And so I gave my SATs and uh, um, uh, only one university I applied for it was Charlotte. And two months before, uh, you'll laugh at this, two months before I was supposed to move here, my friend moved back. So when I landed here. <laughs> yeah. No way, yeah. really? Uh, he did, so he was like the, the reason why yeah. you were going, but then he turned he around came and came back? back. And that was the only, Why did he, he come back? He uh, took over his uh, dad's development business back in India. So he's, he's, uh, he's crushing it there. Uh, but I didn't know that. And so when I landed here, I didn't know anyone. It was uh, quite a bit of experience uh, going from my first job was in Chick-fil-A, filleting uh, chicken, frozen chicken uh, with loaves in the back in the freezer. Um, so that was quite a quite a shock from where I came from. Absolutely. So can you say for sure that you're here for good? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is home, Charlotte's home. My kids were born here. Uh, half my life or more than half now uh, has been outside of India and most of it has been in Charlotte. That's fantastic. So look, you've done a ton in 20 months. Like what's the next big stretch goal? We didn't even talk about like you've done what? 12 transactions. What's the 1000 units? What's the total assets under management? Right now it's about hundred and. 35, 140 million, something like that. So what is the next big stretch goal? Uh, we'll, we'll be a billion dollar business at some point. That's kind of the, the goal. Uh, but more importantly, we want to be completely vertically integrated. That's, that's the main goal. So construction management, there's no reason why we shouldn't be building roads or schools in Charlotte. Uh, we want to bring that division in-house. We want to bring a fund division in-house. Uh, we're exploring software uh, for underwriting, et cetera, that we're building um, and really built into a, from a 10 people company to a 250 people company. That's, that's, the, ten, that's the goal. 10 people to 250? Yeah, that's the goal. That, that's huge. It's easy when you have property management and construction management. That, so. that's, that's property management, right. You could, you could get a lot of employees quick you know, by, yeah. by hiring people for sure. So what do you like to do outside of work for fun? Oh, I love uh, golf as a sport. And then uh, I love traveling for unique, unique adventures by myself. So case in point, last year I went to, uh, I don't know if you know of Wim Hof, the Iceman. 
Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You you yeah. went you went and met him. I uh, spent five days with him up in the Pyrenees did you, Mountains. Yeah, did you four really? Four hours from Barcelona. Yeah, five days camp, summer camp with him, and uh, did ice baths, meditation, canyoning, jumped off cliffs in cold water, and uh, you know it was a tremendous experience for five days. So I did that. Um, yeah. We'll so listeners, if you don't know who this guy, what, what's his name again? Wim Hof. Wim Hof, and. I've, I've seen him on social media. Like this guy, he, he's an older guy, right? I mean, I'm 52. Yeah, he's 62. How, he still 62. does one hand stands. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you'll see him like out in the, I mean, it's freezing cold with snow everywhere and he's wearing shorts and no shirt. And, you know, he's, he's like about to jump in like a freezing cold water. Like, you know, he's just, he just seems like a nut. So what attracted yeah. you to want to hang out with him? Oh, that's, that's how I make decisions. So yeah, <laughs> this is the story, right? So February of 2021, right in the middle of COVID, I was listening to, I think, Tom Baleo's podcast. Uh, and Wim Hof came into the podcast uh, and was talking about health and happiness and his personal tragedy and how the cold kind of helps him meditate. It's a shortcut to meditation. Uh, and he's climbed Mount Everest in shorts and it's just crazy, crazy. Um, so I listened to him, I'm like, all right, let me check his website. And so I go into his website, it says events, it says Spain in summer, like June, July. And I didn't know if COVID would allow me to go, but I just booked it. And uh, I didn't know anyone there, I just showed up. And there were 60 people from Australia to California, 19 to 65 years of age, each seeking their own journey, trying to do something there. Uh, it was an incredible five-day experience. We're, we are all still friends. You, it's all the people that went, still friends. Yeah, I mean, yeah we have a group going on. We like, meet each other. Unique. I mean, what a unique bonding experience. And, you know, yep. um, that... That is, that's like so different from almost from anybody that I've talked to. I mean, seriously, like I, I've asked people like, how do you get uncomfortable? Like, I don't even want to ask that. You know, it's like, you, you know, that just says it right there. Hey, uh, how do people get a hold of you if they want to get to know you better, get to know the company better? What's the best way for them to reach out? Yeah, our company name is Exponential Equity, um, exponential Dash equity.com trying to remove the dash in some fashion uh but my email address is hemel h-e-m-a-l at exponential-equity.com and i'm happy to leave my cell phone number with you as well and happy to get connected i love talking about real estate enabling people in their journeys if they're looking for passive investments active uh talking about any anything that they might be facing an uphill battle on and see if i can assist that's fantastic. Well, I think I am going to be putting my name into that hat of yours to see what deals you guys have. I mean, the returns are pretty spectacular. And these people that are, are like moving and working for you for six months without any pay, I'm like, how does that happen? So in any event, I appreciate you sharing. I'm uh, thankful that we got to meet each other at the conference. And um, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that one. Till next week. Sign off. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. <laughs>